Hey, mamas. You are listening to I See You, Mama, the podcast where we talk about the things that we do as mamas that kind of get lost in the background. And there are all these really cool things that we do um, while we are while we are raising our children. And nobody talks about it. Everybody keeps it on the down low. But you guys are secretly like the most passionate, involved, amazing, creative women ever. And you're amazing. And this is a podcast about you. I'm your host, Ariana Evans. And this is episode number 33. Awesome, right? We've been doing this so long together. If you're new here, awesome. Welcome. Thank you for being here. If you have been listening, so if you've been listening for a while, you know how we go. I appreciate you being here. And I'm just going to be honest. When I listen to podcasts, I'm doing the dishes. I've got my phone tucked in my pocket and I've got earphones on and I'm doing laundry. I'm folding clothes and I'm running around. I'm in the car. I'm in the pickup line. I'm doing all these things. I'm in the grocery store ignoring people because I live in a big town that feels like a small town where I see everybody I know at the grocery store. And so I got to ignore them so I can get done and get out of there or I'll end up chit-chatting in the cereal aisle. No lie. It's happened. Um, so you're here. We've got this really cool episode going on today. It's actually a two-parter. Um, my lovely guest, her name is Allie Henny, and, um, she is, this amazing lady. She runs a podcast called Combing the Roots. She's a seminary student. She has a website called the Armchair Armchair Commentary, where she blogs. She writes articles for The Witness. She runs her own public Facebook page where she points out systemic racism in our country, which is America for you overseas listeners. Sorry. But, and she's also a mom. So she does all this amazing stuff. And, um, she, she is this incredible voice for anti-racism, which we'll talk about in the podcast, because that's a word that I didn't really know before this, and it's kind of come up in um, recently in our culture. Like this, this thing that we've started addressing more and more is to not just be I'm not racist, but I'm anti-racist, which means I'm working against systemic racism wherever I find it in our culture and our society and schools and homes and the police system and, and like wherever in the government um I'm at it means that the person who is anti-racist is actively working against racism so it's really cool this podcast is really cool but this episode is really cool I mean I'm really cool anyway but y'all know that if you've been listening for a while um totally humble I'm super humble about it <laughs> Um, okay. So a few things before we jump into that, I want to ask you to do two things. And here we barely know each other and I'm already asking you to do things. Feel free to be scandalized. I would be anyway. So those two things are, um, share this podcast with your friends. So Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, those are the big ones. Uh, there's lots of things I post every week on one of those big three platforms and if you could share this episode with your friends wherever they may be on one of those three platforms that would be awesome the second thing is uh i see you mama currently is a five-star rated uh podcast on apple podcasts there's only four of those ratings though but those four four people gave me a five-star rating which is awesome 
I really appreciate that, whoever you are. There wasn't a comment where I would be like, yes, you're the best. Thanks so much. But um, this podcast, the more the ratings are there, the more Apple's algorithms pick this podcast up and send it out into the universe and then more people like you are able to hear it. So those two things, share and rate. And if I deserve a five star, which I I don't know, I think I kind of do, maybe a little bit, then do that and uh, leave me some feedback, leave a comment. I love to hear from you. Okay, I know I said two things, but one one more thing and then I'll stop. Um, You can always reach out and I'd love to hear from you at iseeyoumamapodcast.com and all the socially things will be in the show notes about how you can find us. It's always on the website, which is iseeyoumamapodcast.com and that will take you to Twitter, to Facebook, to Instagram, to all the little social places that I'm found all over the world. It's not over the world. It's all over the world wide web, though. Not the world. Anyway, so, and we're going to jump right into our episode with Allie. Um, So this is part one, and this is actually my first um, foray into recording remotely. So Allie and I have never met in person. We've had a couple um, chats via Skype and on the phone, but we've actually never been in the same physical room together, which is just goes to show you the wonders of modern technology that we can record a podcast so uh and be in separate rooms so there might be a couple little glitches where we kind of uh have a hitch or a hiccup or it kind of cuts out for a second but bear with me it's all gonna work out and uh and I'll figure out this new platform too (laughs) so shout out to zencaster.com for creating this whole big thing um that is not a paid ad I promise (laughs) So without further ado, let's jump right into episode, or sorry, part one of my conversation with Allie Henney, and next, the next part will be available next week on Monday, of course. So on to the episode. Hey guys, this is Ariana, and um, this is my guest, Allie Henney. Hey everyone. Hey, I'm so glad you're here. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about Allie. Um, we just were talking about like all the things that she does, and she does a ton of stuff, and it's really amazing. Um, so Allie is a podcaster, a writer, a speaker. Um, she's a seminary student, um, and she is also a mom. So her work kind of encompasses all of that stuff. And um, I'll let you kind of jump in and talk specifically about like what exactly it is you're doing on your podcasting and commenting on. And then really, I just want to know how you got to this place of doing this cool work. Yeah. So um, my podcast is called Combing the Roots. It is available, I think, on uh, iTunes and Spotify and Google Podcasts. And then I think that there are a few other platforms that, that pull from other feeds that have it um but those are kind of like the three the three main ones that it's on and so on my podcast i uh, just talk about issues of race um i do that from a black woman's perspective because i'm a black woman and so that just is really uh what my podcast encompasses and so i I talk about kind of other things it's kind of this intersection of um race and and culture and then a little bit of faith thrown in there because uh, I'm a Christian uh, minister and so that's something that I do but I, it's not my podcast isn't it's I know that it's in like the uh, religion and spirituality subcategory I think on, a, on iTunes and then is it? 
yeah, it's also in the uh, Christianity sub sub category, but it's not really like a religious broadcast. It's not really like a religious podcast. So even right. though, uh, cause I'm a Christian and so like that's part of kind of who I am. And so that's kind of like the, the, maybe the perspective or my worldview or whatever, but I'm not out here like preaching on my podcast. So anybody can listen to it. Right. It's for the masses. Yeah. Yeah. Very I really cool. try to try to have that kind of that mass appeal. And then um, my kind of my main platform that I'm on right now in terms of uh, writing is my Facebook page. That's just my name, A-L-L-Y-H-E-N-N-Y. And so I uh, have daily posts on there that are about, once again, kind of the intersection of race and culture and specifically um, t- talking from kind of an anti-racist standpoint. Right. I I notice like I follow you so I see your posts every day and there's just sort of like I feel like there's a lot of pointing out like here is some injustice. Here is some something that you should know about. You know, and just sort of your commentary along with that, which I really appreciate. Like it's a whole perspective different than, you know, kind of the area I grew up in. And so I appreciate having like your voice saying, "Hey, here's something you should notice." Um so I've been listening and reading along for a while so that's awesome that's awesome glad that you thank you for your support oh you're welcome I appreciate I appreciate a re- it's really fun to see not fun like woohoo but like it's I find it exciting to see other people doing really cool work and uh you know it's it's just exciting for me to be like what you're so engaged and you know I guess I didn't see a lot of that like growing up, I didn't see other moms specifically, and maybe they just get it, did it in the background, like specifically engaging in work of like social justice and, you know, just really cool stuff that you're doing. So, so how did this like platform come about for you? Because, I mean, you weren't always like a, a speaker on podcasts and Facebook. And so how did that come up for you? So my uh, Facebook page, I have a specific public writers page. That's really kind of just become an extension of uh, my personal Facebook account. And so on my personal Facebook account for a really long time, um, I've been on Facebook. I was one of the the early, very early uh, users of of Facebook because it came out whenever I was in whenever I was a freshman in college. And so um, I've kind of have always had Facebook really. I mean, in my, in my adult life, which has been really interesting. Um, so like, I remember whenever Facebook didn't even have like a timeline and all that type of stuff. But anyway, that's a whole other different story. I'm showing my age a little bit. Um, but so, yeah, so like, I kind of have always had this bent of, of just, I, I guess, creating content like on, on my personal page and kind of sharing thoughts just on anything really, but definitely, um, talking about, about race and then kind of as, um, just different national kind of tragedies started to started to happen. Um, so, for example, like the, uh, the the murder of Michael Brown in in St. Louis, that was in Ferguson. Um, Ferguson is outside of St. Louis, so I just I think of it as St. Louis. But um, right. anyway, just that that was something that just really uh, really sparked me to start talking about uh, race on on my on my uh, personal Facebook page. And so I did that um, for years. And then uh, last year, actually last last spring, so spring of uh, 2018, I just really kind of started feeling led to actually create 
like a public page where I um, could put some of those things that I was that I was thinking and saying or whatever kind of out in the atmosphere, kind of out um, in public. And some of that, too, I think that I just really kind of got tired of um, dealing with the with the white fragility uh, and, and some of the people on my friends list. And so I figured, well, you know, if I if I create a page, this is like a whole kind of separate entity people, people can either like choose to follow it or whatever. And it's not that I stopped talking about uh, race on my, on my personal page because I, because I absolutely did and still do, but just being right. able to really kind of um, dive into the topic in a way that I'm not sitting here having to think about like, okay, if I say it this way, then this person is going to come and then it's going to be like this whole, you know, ordeal of, of having to, of having to talk about it. So I kind of just like, was like, you know, I, I just, let me, let me just do a public page. And so, um, I did. And really, I mean, I'm trying to explain something that I, that I really can't explain. It just, I kind of felt, um, those, those were kind of some of maybe the, the underlying reasons. But even as I say that it wasn't like, it wasn't like, I was like, oh, well, there's so many fragile white people that I'm friends with on Facebook. So I'll just go in and like create this public page so I can placate them. That wasn't really what it was about at all. Right. It was more, it was so more like, a, this is kind of a that factor. I really think... Oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. It clipped out. So I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh, no problem. No problem. Um, so yeah, it wasn't like I was just sitting out here like, oh, fragile white people on my friends list. Um, I've actually had a lot of people defriend and unfollow me because of my stances on, on race. And I'm not afraid, um, to offend people, even if you, if you know me, but it was more just kind of like, you know what, I could like take some of this, some of this work and some of this emotional labor and, um, put it on a platform that people, um, can really, really elect to to engage with because maybe um, you are friends with me on Facebook because like you're you go to church with me or people being friends with me on Facebook because I'm connected to other people kind of so, so some of those kinds of relationships that you have where maybe it's like yeah I really like seeing her posts about kids and blah 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 but, I, but these right. other things kind of get on my nerves so anyway so I kind of I, I just kind of uh, was sparked um just kind of a spark of inspiration to to start to start that platform and so then as i started that platform um things things just really kind of started to snowball um i started it in march of 2018 and then by june um just different things just started started happening um i started uh getting getting invites to be on some different podcasts and different things like that and i thought you know what, like, why don't I just do this? Why don't I just create a podcast? So um, I approached some people that I knew who do podcasting and they were like, yeah, great. We would love uh, to, to, to help you out and to, and to have you on our platform. So that's what I did. And so that's kind yeah. of how I ended up here. And that platform is The Witness, right? Yeah, The Witness. Um, the Witness is a black uh, Christian collective. And so really the collective is mostly centered on uh being black christians um but there's also a very strong racial justice component to it so it's kind yeah. of an interesting thing because the witness is a is a collective of of uh black christians and we create content and so even our our kind of our commonality our our, our common our common goal our common under understanding is on racial justice but we are all from from different areas of uh the christian faith and so 
Um, right. You have people on the team who are who are pres- who are Presbyterian, who are Reformed. Um, there's Southern there, there's a Southern Baptist on the team. Um, there's um, somebody. Well, there's there's several of us who have um, Pentecostal and Charismatic backgrounds. Um, I, that's 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 my background. Um, but right. I um, am actually um, a member of the Episcopal Church, and so we have like okay. just kind of this this. Um, variety of of christians and so even a variety of christian perspective that's on that platform but then we all kind of come together on on this issue of of justice and race and what it means to be a black christian right well i would say like you mentioned a word that i think some of our listeners might be like now what and it's the first time i heard the phrase white fragility i think was on your page and I was like, oh, what does that mean? And as I read more and sort of listened more, I like, but I would, can you explain like to our listeners who might not be familiar with that phrase, what that means? Because we do have a very, I feel like a very diverse listening base, but they're not always familiar with words that like, that's common language for you. Oh, yeah. So um, white fragility was a term is a term that is uh, coined by um, a sociologist named Robin D'Angelo. She's a white woman. Um, She's done uh, she's written a lot of books on uh, and on articles and stuff on kind of what it means to be white. She actually has a book titled What It Means to Be White. And so she's an anti-racist advocate. And so she created this this concept of white fragility and she defines it more or less like this. Um, white fragility is a the result of white social racial socialization. It's a state in which even a minimum amount of racial stress becomes intolerable. triggering a range of defensive moves these moves include the outward display of emotions such as anger fear guilt and behaviors such as argumentation silence and leaving the stress-inducing situation these behaviors in turn function to reinstate the white racial comfort and status quo so basically um i've read that definition i don't just like have it have it memorized i, I was about I to it. say like you have that memorized no 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 i i was i was reading it like <laughs> off of off of my phone because i i have it i have it in the uh in the notes on my um, saved in the notes on my phone but right. basically white fragility is kind of the overarching concept that explains why it is so difficult to talk to white people about race and maybe right. there are white people who are listening to this are like i'm it's not hard to talk about race, whatever. But as a black woman, I can tell you that bringing up any issue as it pertains to race is actually very um, difficult to talk to to white people kind of as as a unit, as a whole about race. Right. And so there are these responses. Everybody thinks that their response is unique. Everyone thinks that that their that their arguments that their whatever that their that their arguments that their that their turn of phrase or whatever is some sort of unique thing that they just thought of, but really it's a product of white people's racial socialization. So a lot of white folks grow up. Um, if you're not growing up just where you're talking about race and it's in like a negative racist kind of way, what a lot of white folks grow up with is race is something that you don't talk about in public. So even right. in families that are racist, often it's like, 
don't talk about that like like you people will have these unsavory um, ideas they'll have these racist ideas but you know not to speak those things in public unless you're in, unless like you're an avowed racist and you're in this and you're in spaces where like that's the whole point to do that most white people understand that it's not like the socially polite thing to be racist and so even white people right. who think of themselves as non-racist they would be like oh well it's just not polite to talk about people's color it's not polite to talk about this and that in contrast people who aren't white we talk about race all the time like we, right. we like we think about race all the time because we kind of are, are forced to by by the by the racial status quo so this idea of fragility is is basically it's what what makes those like what makes those conversations difficult what makes those conversations um contentious and so that's that's there's a lot more to it there's a whole entire book by robin d'angelo called white fragility that explains this way better than i can even just like on this on this podcast um but she but she breaks it down a a lot yeah well read listeners check that out there's there's so much like there's so much that we don't, I don't know, as like a white person walking through the world and having relationships and, and dealing with things like there are things that I don't, I don't even see about myself because you're right. It is the status quo. Like this is the normal. And I think, think, oh, well, I'm unique. I'm on my own person, but really there's like, there's a general sort of status that's available to me as a middle-aged white woman in a, you know, moderately middle-class family you know, that I don't even think about, that it's really eye-opening for me to hear that kind of stuff and go, oh, 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 okay. Well, yeah, Um, a lot of it comes down to white people don't think of themselves as being a race, and they don't think of themselves as being a culture. And so it's like everybody else has culture. Everybody else has a a race, and, like, we're just kind of the default like the the like the neutral bubble or whatever so those concepts can be can be new they can be they can be foreign they can be like oh what is this like people are pointing out stuff about about my culture well I, like i don't know if i'm part of a culture or whatever so it's, it's just it's very yeah. interesting it is like i mean there i know there's been all this kind of talk about like what specifically it is to be white in america and like there's all these voices that say well i'm italian i'm irish i'm this that and like but really and truthfully, like there is this kind of homogenized white culture. And I, you know, I'm I'm becoming more aware of it as I am am more educated by people like you who are doing the hard work of saying, hey, this is this is a thing. You should listen. It's true. That's very true. So I appreciate I appreciate the work that you're doing. So in all of this really cool work that you're doing, you're also a mom and raising, is it, you have two girls, right? Yep, two girls. Two girls, and they're experiencing the world through your eyes and through your husband's eyes. And um, that's, I've, I just want to, like, talk more about that, like how you feel like as a parent, your your parenting has been changed by the work that you do. Well, I actually wouldn't say that my parenting has been changed necessarily um, by the work that I do. I think that um, it definitely maybe informs my parenting to an extent, but a lot of the work that I do is really just comes out of my lived experience as a Black woman in the United States. And so 
a lot of my platform, a lot of what I what I talk about, um, a lot of what I write about, a lot of what I study in seminary is is centered on that. Now, with that said, I definitely would say, you know, I, I am a specialist, I'm, I'm an expert or whatever in this field. And so being a specialist, being an expert in the in, in a field, you kind of, um, there, there are things that you know, and there are things that you maybe could, would consider differently than you would if you were um, at a different specialty or, or were, were in a different field. Um, you know, that's just like people who are teachers um, and say like, maybe you're a math teacher. And so whenever you parent your kids, you're going to be good at math and you're going to be like good at being able to help your kids uh, study, study math. Um, if you are right. a parent that is um, like, for instance, my mother-in-law, uh, she is a retired industrial arts teacher, and so her specialty is woodworking. Um, but she, oh. but she knows how to do a lot of other stuff. So my husband had the experience growing up of having a wood shop at his house and making things in the wood shop, and and knowing how to uh, use tools and knowing how to to do all those types of things that people that didn't have that experience that didn't have a, a, a mom who or a parent who was an industrial arts teacher they wouldn't have had those experiences like I mean I can I can use tools I used to think of myself as being somewhat handy but like my husband is as at a totally different level than that yeah and you got nothing on him <laughs> yeah exactly it's like um now I mean as far as woodworking goes I mean I've never been able to do that but it's like you know I could use a yeah. screwdriver like I can I can yeah. like you know hammer I can I can drive a nail into some drywall <laughs> like that's like you know I could I could do that kind of stuff you know I'm I'm, I'm a little bit mechanically inclined and can take things apart and put them together right. put them back together uh with with relatively little incident um but my husband thought <laughs> is that is is at you know a completely different level on that. So it's the same right. way whenever it comes to the things that I do. It's I mean, you know, there's there's the baseline of my of my lived experience, but then there's also kind of the the specialty aspect of it. But a lot of what I I do in terms of my parenting, I wouldn't necessarily say that it affects my parenting, that it affects my approach to parenting. Um it it's it maybe more kind of in informs it in in some ways, or I wouldn't say that like um, that it that it's really changed anything. But then the other aspect of that too is that um, you know my my oldest is five years old, and so she right. was an infant whenever um, Mike Brown was was killed in Ferguson, mm -hmm. and so my motherhood in a lot of ways um, was was forged in in that context and so right. was forged in the context of of raising children in a society that has always been racialized but in the um, you know last five years has become increasingly polarized and so that has so that's a little right. bit um, of a different thing but but I think about it you know there are things that I would have, uh, there, there are things that maybe I'm able to um, maybe name a little bit better and kind of say where I would have already been like, yeah, you're not going to like spend the night at somebody's house that has a Confederate flag flying on their on their uh, on their house, like period, or if it's in right. their house like that would like that was already a stance that I would have had. It didn't take Mike Brown getting killed. It didn't take Charlottesville. Right. It didn't, it didn't take Charleston. It didn't take any of that for me to be like, for, for me to, to, for me to think of that as, as not being a solid 
parent decision parenting decision but like now it's like even having more information and being like okay yeah like we're definitely not doing this and we're definitely not doing this because of the of our current zeitgeist or whatever so if anything I think that that my daughters um even kind of inspire they 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 are sort of like the inspiration um for my work a lot of what I do uh you know is the outflow of wanting to create a better world for them and and wanting to uh you know leave them with with something that is that is better than what I had and you know I don't know necessarily just kind of kind of given the way that the world is now I don't necessarily think that the world will change for for my children but my hope is that I can instill something in my children that then will hopefully affect uh my grandchildren in a in a positive yeah. way and so that's kind of sad to be like yeah I don't really hope that the world is going to be better but like I've watched mm-hmm. things just in the space of my I have a five-year-old and then my my um, youngest will turn three in January and right. so just in the span of my five-year-old's life I've seen things that I didn't think that I would ever see and so yeah. that's kind of like where I should be like oh I have so much hope I mean I have hope but like I don't think that things are going to be that things are going to be necessarily um better for them but I think that my generation will hopefully build a foundation the foundation upon um or build upon the foundation that we already received that they'll be able um to to make some of the changes that we that we dream about now yeah I mean it does feel like over the last five years like I don't know if it's just coverage of it, but it does feel like it's intensified. Like, I feel like there's something in the news, not just every day, but like multiple times a day that is like, what, what this, this is another one, another one, another one. Like we get through one in the trial of one. And I specifically was talking about, was following a discussion group um, about Botham Jean and his, uh, the trial of his, of his killer and we get through with that trial and the immediately the next day was the next thing in Fort Worth. And I was like, okay, come on. Just so the quantity of it, I don't know, maybe I'm just more aware of it or has it always been at this level? Like, or there's more media coverage, but it feels like there's a definite intensification of um, things that really from my eyes look like racial injustice. And I know they look like that in um, a lot of people's eyes and it's, I know there's some pushback, you know, I've heard people say, Oh, it's not really about that, but it, it feels like that. It feels like it is. You know, I think that, that all of those things, I mean, except for the, well, it's not racial injustice. I think that, that all those things that you mentioned as factors, I think that that all those things are true. Um, I don't know necessarily if, if we were really to quantify if there would be an increase, there's definitely has been an increase in some things. And there are, there are studies that have borne that out. Uh, white supremacy is on white, not white supremacy, excuse me, white nationalism, um, which is rooted in white, in white supremacy. But I make that distinction because white nationalism encompasses things like the Klan, um, like neo-Nazis and that. So like specific concerted people who are avowed racist and who are creating organizations to to um, terrorize black brown and indigenous people that mm-hmm. is quantifiably on the rise um white uh, white right wing terrorism is quantifiably 
on the rise and actually in america there are more right-wing attacks terrorist attacks that have happened um in that context than in um than like muslim terrorism islamist terrorism that that's happened and so it's definitely a quantifiable thing but i think that there's also um just the the fact that like social media has become the new newspaper and so these types of things have always happened black people have always been murdered by the state period like that's something that's always happened but because of social media Black people, where where we've been kind of isolated in our own enclaves for so long and for a lot of American history where different things happened, and we would hear about those things and news would spread kind of through through our our, our Black social networks, our, just kind of our organic, our organic social networks that we had. But now it's like you're having where if something happens in Dallas and then something happens in Philadelphia and then something happens in DC and then something happens in Jacksonville and then something happens in LA and something happens in Chicago and something happens in Kansas City and something happens in Omaha and something happens in San Antonio where black people are all able to compare notes in real time on those things that happen and we're able to say like the yeah you know, like like I like somebody has a, has an experience and we're able to throw in yes I've also had this experience and we're able to find the news articles from somebody five years ago who had the same experience and so right. um I think that it kind of creates this this situation where where yeah there's like way more awareness about it and so you see that stuff that's happened and it feels like it's happening every day it's because it's been happening every day but we but now like we have the receipts for it and we can and we can pull up the article on our local news and say yes uh, somebody somebody shot a black woman in her home three years ago under similar circumstances and so that that has that has totally changed the game because it used to be that like we would say the stuff is happening stuff is happening and not necessarily we knew that it was happening because we know but being able to provide like the receipts and say like yeah actually this is a thing so that that that's so i i think that is that is all those things all at once well and you and no one can get away with like the one bad apple kind of you know ploy they oh that's just one guy that's just one time that's Mm -hmm. just one off because it's happening so much and so often and so widespread that there's there is a systemic thing that's happening that you're like well if it's you can't say it's one bad apple three hundred thousand times that's a lot of bad apples that's that's the whole pot is spoiled or infected you know like at least like infected and saying, uh, no, there's a, there's a thing happening. And I think that's, that's a powerful thing to bring to people's into people's face. And I don't know, like if the younger generation, cause I'm in my forties and my kids are still like elementary age, um, will be sort of like more inherently aware of all this stuff. But I was just not, I was a blissfully unaware, you know, for my, for my teens and twenties that the world was like this. I'm sure the people I was growing up with alongside were that were people of color were not blissfully unaware, but I was, and it's good to have it like, Oh, in your face a little bit and not just like, let's just gloss over this again because ah, it's just one, it's just one time, you know? Yeah, that's so true. That's so true. Whenever it is happening all the time, because I remember even during like just as, as, as early as five years ago, 
people saying, oh, well, you know, it's just, it's just one bad apple. And there were several things. It wasn't just, it wasn't just Michael Brown. It was also Eric Garner. It was also mm-hmm. Tamir Rice. It was also John Crawford. Um, mm-hmm. There were people that, that were, that were dying and people would just say, well, you know, if it's, if it's police brutality, well, it's probably just one bad apple. But whenever you have, name after name after name so many names that I like I can't even name them like I can't even I can't even like think of all of them just just in the space of the last of the last five years it gets harder and harder to deny it now I mean that doesn't mean that white folks still aren't out here denying it and still out here wanting to wanting to fabricate like this whole world because there's a lot of because you I mean you talk about like the blissfully unaware that's something that Mm -hmm. I hear all the time is there are people that that are 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 so um they're so bathed in whiteness so bathed in in white culture and that can also be black brown and indigenous people too but people that are so fortified in whiteness in white culture that they don't see what is what is just painfully obvious to the rest of us and they have so narratives. It's more of a willful ignorance than a blissfully unaware. Yeah, I think that there's that there is an uh, there is a component of of willfulness to it. And what I mean by that is like, mm-hmm. yeah, if you, I I, I totally get, because um, where where I live, where I where I I have spent most of my um, most of my life um, at this at this point, not most, I guess not not quite most of my adult life, but anyway, that's all that's a whole other story. But I have come up in these contexts where I um, am what I would call like a super minority and so this is a this is a Mm -hmm. term that i've coined um and i've talked about it on my page maybe you've seen maybe you've seen my posts about this where for me a super minority is whenever you are in a situation where you a a space a, a town a school whatever and you whatever population it is um whatever racial population it is whenever you are represented less in that population than you are in the country as a whole so um black people african american people uh comprise about 12 to 13 percent of the population so in any space that isn't uh 12 to 13 percent black people you're a super minority and so um like you like you you probably qualify as a super minority so where i grew up um at, at different times, like I, I actually looked at census data on this. Census data on this. While while I was growing up in my in my small little uh, rural Missouri town, that town was um, between ninety five and ninety seven percent white the whole time that I was growing up there. And so, right. um, basically, what that what that meant um, in certain contexts was that for every for every black person, there would be like fifty or so white people. And so um, I was never a majority in any space except for my family and except for church and except for in like things that were specific spaces that were affinity spaces for black people that that white people didn't show up at um, or didn't care about or whatever. And so like I, I say that I bring that point up to just to to make the point that that like whenever you are around whiteness and see and 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 see white people and kind of you 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 I I feel like that I that I have insight um into white people and then also my husband is is white and so having the the insight into whiteness and having the insight into white culture 
um, I think I, I think I can say that I think that there is a willful aspect to that because mm-hmm. white people think that they're the, they're the default in everything. And so there's never mm-hmm. really like the introspection. There, there's rarely, I should say, maybe maybe I shouldn't say never because I'm sure that maybe there's that there's somebody somewhere that's like, oh, no, I've thought about this. Um, but there is rarely yeah. like the level of introspection in those spaces to think about why if if 13% of the population is is black then why aren't there black people here and um you know just one example because that's just you know my 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 uh my context is is the church and i'm actually um leading some discussions about this in in my city about why the city isn't diverse and then ergo why churches aren't diverse and a lot of times in the church people come up with these different ideas that that, that are supposed to explain like why their church isn't diverse and it's like well you know people just have a different preference for worship and all these other different types of things that yeah, maybe make a difference. But at the end of the day, it's just because you don't want to have a space that would be welcoming for people who are different than you. And so I think that that right. there's, I think that there is like, like you, I, I can say for kids, for, for young people, maybe there's kind of this blissful unawareness to things mm-hmm. um, because that's just kind of how things are for you. Um, I know for me, like growing up in a, in a predominantly white context, there were things that I just sort of like thought like this was just the way that it is like if this is like like i just i like like i have to make sure that white people are comfortable um at all times that they're comfortable with me at all times that they're comfortable with with everything like i like that was just something that i took for granted because that was a heavy thing for a kid to carry yeah it it really is but is and i wasn't able to name that as such but as an adult i can like i can see it's like this is what i learned being and then being a young adult then going to college in a city that was um 90 something percent high 90s like 95 i think something like that percent white whenever whenever i first moved there um Mm. that's something that that it's really not been until um you know my 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 mid to late 20s and and um i'm 34 now so it's really just kind of been within like the last decade or so that like i've i've really been able to name it like in my in my early 20s I, I could I like I knew that there was something that was off, but like I didn't really know how to name it. But it really wasn't until um, I moved to the Washington D.C. area and um, lived in a town that really isn't that diverse, but it was way more diverse than what I was used to. And mm-hmm. um, I lived in Virginia, and uh, I remember visiting Richmond, uh, which is the capital mm-hmm. of Virginia, for the first time. And it is technically a majority or um, a minority majority city, um, but is almost 50% black. And then like there's other ethnicities that puts it um, up over to where I think it's like a little bit more, maybe just at 51% um, minority. But where I'm walking through downtown Richmond and literally every other person that I'm seeing looks like me. And then like even depending on the part of town too, like most of the people look like me. Yo, I felt like I was in Wakanda. I remember the first time <laughs> that I that I was in Richmond. Like I just wanted to hug everybody. Um, like my my husband and I had gone there on vacation, and I had never I had never been in any type of space like that before, um, where wow. where it was all black people. And then uh, very recently this summer, my family uh, we went on vacation um, to Chicago, and we uh, stayed at an Air we stayed at an Airbnb in Hyde Park, and um, we went to uh, Jewel. We went to like this this grocery store, and for the first time in my life, 
I walked into a grocery store and most of the people who were shopping looked like me. Most of the people who were at doing the, I think everybody, I have to say most, like like pretty much everybody that was checking out, that was a worker in the store. I don't think I saw like, like I, I, I don't think I saw any white person in that store besides my husband. And like if, if there were other white people that were there at the time, I didn't notice them because all I noticed was people who looked like me and just, and then like other like brown people and stuff. And that was a different experience because I'm used to going into the store and making sure because it's white people there, like making sure my hands aren't in my pockets, making sure that I'm not doing anything that would be suspicious and that would make people think Mm -hmm. that I'm stealing because I stick out like a sore thumb. And so everybody's eyes are automatically on me. Um, And not just that it feels that way, like it is that way, um, especially depending on the store. And so anyway, that's just a really, a really, really long winded way to say that, like, there are things that that white people totally don't ever have to have the awareness of and they don't ever think about it. And then as a kid, you know, you just don't think about it because you're a kid. You're just living your life and the way it is is the way it is. But then whenever you get to be an adult and like you are presented with people saying, hey, racism is a thing and you're presented with people that have these experiences and you have, um, it's called, uh, uh, there's this book called Divided by Faith uh, by by uh, Emerson and Smith or the, I can't remember the first names, but those are the authors where they talk about okay. these white cultural tools. And so white people have like these cultural tools that they use to explain away racism, basically, to explain why things are the way they are. And so white supremacy, white culture, whatever, kind of gives white people this social script for how to handle things. So like there's this social script for police brutality. There's this social script for whenever somebody um, says that they're going to experience, that, that, that they've experienced discrimination in a certain space. Like there's this whole social script that white people have been taught and how to respond and so it like kind of so so it refl- so it, re- it reinforces like this this idea of of and really it's white supremacy but it it, it enforces it reinforces this idea of white racial innocence that like you don't you're, you don't know you didn't know that this was a thing you didn't know that whatever oh it couldn't be it couldn't be that it couldn't be racism and so anyway that's that's right. a super that's a super long-winded way just to say that that i think that you know the blissfully ignorant part i think there is like a blissful unawareness but i think that there that that blissful ignorance that maybe you have as a, as a child or a teenager or even as as maybe a college age young adult maybe mm-hmm. I, it's hard for me to extend it that far it's actually really hard for me to extend it like really past the middle school years even um but yeah. that but that becomes just a a reject a cultural rejection of of the truth as it pertains to race right well i mean and then in the there was definitely this idea in the in the 90s when i was in high school was this idea was we don't see color we're all colorblind like i remember people talking about that like we're not going to talk about how people are different shades Um, And there was just sort of like a given, even though the high school I was going to was, like I said, it was a minority majority high school. I don't know if I've mentioned that before. So like there was a majority of people of color in my school and there was just this sort of like given, like, we're not going to talk about this, even though it was, it was there in my little small town, like, but there was this mindset and it was perpetuated by the adults around us. Like, that's just not something we talk about. It's not polite mm-hmm. or it's not, you know, okay. And I, I carried that on and like, uh, and there was a point where I was like, this, this is not, 
this is not how I'm going to live my life anymore. I had an incident, not an incident, but like we were all camping um, this weekend. And um, one of the families that was camping with us was an interracial married couple and who are sweet friends of ours. And my youngest son, six, uh, he, he said, oh, I didn't know that people with brown skin and people with peach skin could get married. And I said, of course they can. You know, and it was, he just sort of like made this assumption. And I was like, as much stuff as we talk about and do in our family, and still I have the six-year-old who thinks mm-hmm. that you're only supposed to go with the person that you match mm-hmm. with. And I'm like, that's not a thing, you know? And he, he did, he just was like, oh, okay. It wasn't like in his mind, he wasn't thinking, oh no, this is bad and wrong. He just was like, oh, this is an assumption I've made because this is what I see in the majority of the world. Mm-hmm. And but to push back against that for him and say, actually, human beings, no matter the color, can love each other and marry each other. And he was like, oh, okay. He took it and was like, that was it. He, he didn't say, like, but mom. He just was like, oh, okay, well, good. Okay, good to know. Yeah. Uh, yep. It kind of blew my mind, though. I was like, in my head, I was like, oh, my God, have we taught him this thing? And he's like, secretly, this is what he believes about race. And I'm like, no, he's just making assumptions based on his observations, you know? And it's like, but to proactively like push against that and say, actually, listen, we need to talk about this. Like we have, like I can name like five or six different families that we're really close with that are interracial couples, but he's just never noticed. I don't know. But yeah, (laughs) sort of giving him those tools to talk about it. Like, it's okay. We're going to talk about it. Yeah, you know, you talk you know? about that. That's really good that that you're doing that. And, you know, being a, a parent that um, right now we are we are in a space that is predominantly white. And my, my um, oldest daughter's school is predominantly white, even though it's one of the more, quote unquote, diverse schools, uh, elementary schools in the district. Uh, my, my youngest um, goes to goes to a preschool that is not it's not very diverse at all it's a church um based preschool there's there's one a a very large church in my city that that also runs um a preschool and so that i do see um i do see some children there of of color um most of what i see are people who are adoptees or so Mm -hmm. so transracial adoptees and then also um, there are a lot of uh, biracial and multiracial uh, children there. Um, it's right. it's very it's very rare actually that I see parents um, who look like me, and I don't know if I've really ever seen a kid there that has like two black parents or two brown parents or whatever. Like it's usually that that's just mm-hmm. kind of the the, the demographic um, of of where we're at. And so something that I've had to do in my parenting is just be really, really, really proactive is as a, as a black mom, raising, raising black kids, raising kids who, who are, who are biracial um, for me. And that's, and even raising biracial kids, like there's a whole kind of aspect. I don't feel like, I don't feel like that, that um, parents who are interracial, who are in interracial marriages and relationships really consider 
like what that means for their kids i think particularly those because uh, the most common configuration of interracial marriages are are white women with black men and so that's that's mm-hmm. like the majority is something like like i want to say 87 percent, 90 percent. i can't remember but it's it's the vast majority and so often white women um come into these contexts come into the context of their relationship completely ignorant and so just completely ignorant of race and so there's a lot that kind of there, there's a lot of damage that is that is done um to to uh biracial children kind of because of that dynamic and because because of some other dynamics um within within the black community within within the white community um there's there's some dynamics that can that can be very difficult and i and i don't think that 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 american parents that we have figured out how to raise children um who are who are biracial and and who are and who are multiracial um but something that has been very important for me as a parent of a, of a child who's biracial is to make sure that they have a black identity and they definitely, I, because I mean, not, and I realize that, that as a, that, that because my kids are biracial, that, that they also need to have a white identity too. And they need to have a healthy white identity because what I don't want is for my kids to have a black identity and to have unhealthy ideas about their whiteness um, or, or maybe better stated about the fact that their dad is white and that they right. are also white because they they also have this descendancy because of of who they are but society will not always perceive them as being white and so they don't they don't get to identify they they don't get to identify as white they can identify as black they can identify as biracial they can identify as multiracial but they really can't identify as white and so Mm -hmm. um so so kind of helping them so for so the the tack that i've taken is I realize, you know, black identity is something that is under attack in America. And so I try really, really hard to help my kids understand that they're black. And there will come a point when I'll start teaching them a little bit more about their about their immigrant heritage. My my, my husband's family um, immigrated from their their Germanic people, so they so they come from Germany, they come from Prussia, they come from Switzerland. Um, I think those are those are kind of the three main places that they that they come yeah. from. And so they will de- and and so we have some of those immigration stories. We have all that type of stuff, um, you know, documentation, pictures, all that other that other type of stuff because white people have access to that kind of stuff whenever you're an enslaved whenever you're from an enslaved population you don't have the privilege of having pictures of your ancestors and all this other type of stuff and documents showing where they came in and how they got here and what they had with them and all this other type of stuff you don't get that privilege and so they'll learn about that at some point and you know there's been some times like whenever my, my oldest has like said something um where I can't remember what it was, but my but I said something about like my my uh, daughter had mentioned something about Africa, um, because I've been talking about about how black people how we come from Africa and it's a place where where there's all black people, um, kind of she really likes Black Panther and so kind of you know, talking about that even kind of in essence with in, in in conjunction with Black Panther, and so we've talked about slavery, we've talked about all these different things that she's really kind of learning and starting to be able to to identify, and so I don't remember what it was, but there was something um that that about africa or whatever something had come up and so she had asked a question and so i was like well yeah that's that's where our that's where our people are from and then i maybe had mentioned something about like um 
about my husband's people being from someplace else and so she's like oh yeah yeah that's where that's where our people are from but daddy's people aren't our people and I'm like well daddy's people aren't my people but daddy's people are your people too because you come from mommy and daddy so you have these so, so you have like black people are your people and white people are also your people and so kind of helping her to understand and so she was like she's like oh well I didn't know that and so like yeah. like because because we've been focusing on the on the blackness aspect of it it's like she understands that her dad's white like she gets she gets that that you yeah. know Mima and Papa are, are white and so it kind of like coalesced from from her because the other because the other kind of conversation just so you understand like where my daughter is at developmentally um there's been times like whenever I've said like whatever she's and I've been like oh you know this is where you come from and she's been like well, I come from God. And I'm like, what? and I'm like, okay, like, yes, yes you, she, she's like, God created <laughs> me. So and I'm like, okay, yes, God created you in mommy's womb. Like you came, right. like you came from both mommy and daddy, but yes, God created you. So that's kind of where she's at in her, in her understanding a yeah. little, a little bit. She's like, I came from, I came from heaven. It's like sweet five-year-old. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Yes. They just have these ideas about like, what? Yeah. I just magically appeared one day. I'm like, yeah. Oh no. <laughs> there was labor baby yeah there was there was like there there, there was a lot of work <laughs> that came right. that, that, that came with not just carrying you but also having yeah. you didn't just show up you didn't just right. you didn't just like just show up one day like oh hey i'm here That'd like be we, convenient. We, we went through some work to get you here <laughs> don't forget <laughs> it <laughs> like sometimes like i'll oh, like yeah. I'll, I'll be you know I'll, I'll be like yeah i i I'll, like you came out of me like they had to take you out of me um and just just kind of emphasizing that in an age-appropriate manner because i she's a c-section yeah. my oldest is a c-section baby right. so like emphasizing like no 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 you you came out of me <laughs> but yeah so just trying to uh really you know teach that um and be proactive and so um when before my daughter started kindergarten I I wanted to be very proactive because whenever she was younger and and being in the all white context that she was in, it was she just she wasn't because she was in preschool from you know two to four years old I guess really like like two to to five because she turned three and turned five while she was in preschool, um, right. but but she wasn't developmentally she wasn't at that at that place to really kind of understand. To, to understand that there are different like kinds of people and stuff. And so, but I wanted, so, so she, she understood that she was Brown. She understood all these things, but, but she didn't really have a real concept for it where I, where I could see that she was kind of ready to start developing that concept. Um, because right. we had been talking about skin color um, really since she was able to name colors, um, talking about skin color, talking about our skin color and, and what are different, what's different about my skin color and her skin color and daddy's skin color and d- doing all of that. Mm-hmm. So that prepared her then um, that, that at five, we were able to start, start having some of these conversations about, about race, about slavery. And so something that I, that I had to do to prepare her, I felt like I needed to do to prepare her for being in a school that was predominantly white um, in a, in a place where people are racist is teaching her about racial slurs and and helping her mm-hmm. um, to understand and so then also teaching her kind of the different the different versions of the n-word like knowing that she was going to be around um, 
black kids that were that were her age or older where 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 certain language and stuff is used helping her to understand um what she would be what she would be seeing and hearing because of because of the composition and stuff of our of our neighborhood and so helping her um just be just preparing her and helping her to be able to to understand and to have and to have language for that and so i've seen as a parent where um i've seen like her intentionality in um wanting to wanting to embrace that aspect of herself and where blackness in a lot of ways um is her default so like at school her school is a title one school so like they all they're always giving away books they're always like you're trying to trying to really be proactive and stuff on that angle and so like i noticed that if there are books with black people on it she'll bring those books home and like she brought like a like even if they're not like at her grade level she'll still bring them like if she sees black people on the cover she'll like she'll bring it home representation and exactly like she'll it's a representation yeah. yeah that's it for this week but more Allie Henny will be available next week and you'll get to hear the rest of our conversation and um I know it's some heavy stuff it's it's not um I know we can sometimes cover heavy stuff but there's a lot of lightness to being a mom but this is actually really good for me to hear and practice and know about and think about and um, just to be on my radar um, that I just can't carry on like I used to um, just kind of oblivious to everything around me um, but be a part of there being a different solution to what it's like for people of color in this country so uh, tune in next week for the rest of that interview and um, thanks for stopping by and like I said at the beginning um, rate subscribe, share. I didn't say subscribe, but you could do that too. So rate, share, um, and leave a comment and reach out. And, uh, thanks for tuning in. I really appreciate you. So I see you out there, mamas. I see you doing good. Have a great week. Bye.